Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. John 20, 1 through 18. We read from John's Gospel just two days ago, um, hearing the story of Jesus' death, hearing Jesus' words, it is finished, that he spoke upon the cross before he gave up his spirit. And now right after that, after he is buried, we find, of course, the story of the resurrection starting at verse 1. Let's pray before we read this great passage. Let's pray. O Lord, let it be today that we receive life in Jesus' name. God, we, we pray that, that as we open your word, the Bible, we would do so with faith, believing that these words, that this story is the truth. It is the truth. A true story of your great power and your victory, of your conquering of death. God, we pray that you would mold us and shape us, that you would transform our minds, that you would pull us away from darkness, away from falsehood and into the light and into the truth as we hear the story of Jesus' resurrection. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. John 20, 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she, stood, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. The shortest correspondence to ever have been communicated through technology was done with no words at all, using only punctuation. This correspondence was sent in 1862 via telegraph or telegram. And it was in those days that the telegram was the only immediate communication across great distances. Of course, no telephone yet. And the situation was this, that the great French author, Victor Hugo, had just finished his great masterpiece, Les Miserables. And his book, his novel, was about to be released to the public. But because of, of some scheduling difficulties, he was out of France when the book was going to be released. And so he was away and he didn't have a sense for what was, was happening in Paris where the book was being released. He had poured his whole life into this novel. 655,000 words is Les Miserables in its entirety in the French language. 655,000 words. And so this novel is going to be released while he's away from home and he wondered what type of reaction it was receiving. And so he, he went to send a telegram. And it was a very, very expensive thing to do this because telegram companies charged per character. So Victor Hugo just used a single character when communicating his desire for knowledge to his publisher. He sent the telegram, just one character, the question mark. What's happening? There's a lot to be said in that one punctuation mark, isn't there? What's happening? How is it being received? What are the critics saying? What is the public saying in response to this great work that he's produced? Given the situation, the publisher knew exactly what Victor Hugo wanted to know. How is the novel being received? And the publisher played along and sent back a single character in response. The exclamation mark. It was receiving rave reviews. It was immediately popular. It was going to be translated already into to Portuguese and, and Italian and other languages. The question mark and the exclamation mark. So much of our lives, so much of our thoughts, so many of our conversations are spent with those punctuation marks, questions, and hopefully resounding, positive, joyful answers. But of course, we have bigger questions than the reception of a novel Mary had bigger questions than what Victor Hugo was wondering about in 1862. And we can likely relate to Mary in John's account of the resurrection story who has several questions. Of course, there are particular questions, but, but overall we can say her question is almost a rhetorical one. What is going on? What is happening? What should I do with my life now? 
She had her own questions, but Jesus directly asks two questions of Mary in verse 15 of our text. Woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? She's weeping because all of the evidence points to Jesus' body being stolen. And that's what she has already said to the angels. That's what she believes has happened it's likely that we've heard the story so many times that the, the depth of Mary's sorrow and the depth of her questioning perhaps escapes us. But the text told us four times that Mary was weeping. That's how serious her emotional condition is. Four times we learn Mary was weeping. She was not just experiencing a little discouragement or concern, Her emotions were far beyond that. Because of these questions in her mind, where is Jesus? Who has taken him away? And even more largely, what now will she be doing with her life? This follower of Jesus who loved him and loved to be with him, loved to hear his teaching, who trusted in him. What now? In her mind, everything is falling apart. The biggest question mark that she could have. I saw someone weeping like this a few years ago. I was actually just driving through town. And uh, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed a few people on a front lawn of a house here in Ripon. I don't know who it was. Uh, I didn't have a chance to stop as there were already other people around this person who was weeping. But as I drove past the person's house, I saw a woman halfway between the house and the street on her knees, head tilted back, screaming out, crying, weeping. And there were a few other people gathering around to care for this woman. I, of course, don't know what the situation was, but, but that, that image is seared into my mind. Perhaps you've been driving along in maybe highway traffic at some point and looked over at a nearby car and you've seen this kind of weeping happening in a parking lot or on the freeway or in high school. Or you've seen this kind of weeping or you've even done this kind of weeping in in your own home because of grief. Because of these kinds of questions that Mary is asking. What now? What will I do? Where will I go? In those situations, it feels like the world is spinning and there's nothing more than you can do but cry. Why are you weeping, they said. "They've, They've taken the Lord. So, they also ask her, whom are you seeking? She's already told the angels she was seeking Jesus, thinking that she'll find his dead body, but assuming that someone had taken him away. It's so interesting, actually, that the answer to both of those questions is essentially the same. Why are you weeping and who are you seeking? Mary is seeking Jesus, but she can't find him, so she's crying. She's weeping because she can't find the one who she desires to see. Consider that Mary had been with Jesus during so much of his ministry. Luke chapter 8 verse 2 says that Jesus delivered Mary from a demonic oppression. This woman who had been a prostitute and who was, who was vexed and harassed and oppressed by demonic forces, Jesus delivered her from that. And so after that, She begins following Jesus, taking care of Jesus, listening to his teaching. 
She was among the women who were particular caretakers for Jesus and the disciples during their ministry. And she was friends with Jesus. Sometimes when we think about Jesus and the disciples, we think um, always in terms of this hierarchy, Jesus and the twelve who followed him. And if certainly there is some, some truth to that, that Jesus was in authority over them. But, but Jesus was also so clear that they were his friends. His friends. That Mary was his friend. They loved to be together, to share meals with one another. And so her presence at the tomb reflected her devotion to Jesus. And all this is to say her concern goes beyond just wanting to know where Jesus' body has been taken. In her mind, the situation is just getting worse. Even worse, after seeing his crucifixion, seeing that he died, he's been taken to this grave, and now she can't even find his body to take care of him. So in addition to where is Jesus, Mary could have asked the question, what is happening What am I to do with my life now? Victor Hugo's question mark looks so very small compared to the questions that Mary is asking. But Mary's question is met with an even greater exclamation point than what Victor Hugo received from his publisher. She hears his voice. She hears her name. Spoken from the lips of the resurrected Christ. She sees Jesus. With the skillful way that John tells the story, it's easy to imagine her eyes lighting up when it clicks. And she's aware, finally, of what is happening. Maybe she recalls what Jesus had predicted, that he would be handed over to the chief priest, he would be be, uh, tortured, killed, And after three days, he would rise. Perhaps that little truth that Jesus had been telling to his disciples as he went on his way to Jerusalem clicked into her mind and she realized it was true and it's fulfilled. Certainly, she would have just been glad to see Jesus. Again, because she was his friend. She loved him. This man who she thought was dead is now alive again. And because he's alive, it means all of his promises are true. Now she probably couldn't comprehend all of that in one moment, but she couldn't help herself from lunging at Jesus to give him a hug. Afterwards, she tells the disciples another statement needing, I would say, an exclamation point. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And she says that in the context where she hasn't just seen him lying in a grave, she's seen him walking, speaking, conversing with her, teaching her once again. Think of all the times that Jesus has already given an exclamation point response to a terrible problem during his ministry. That's what he does wherever he goes. 5,000 hungry people. Not only does Jesus solve this tremendous problem of 5,000 hungry people, there are 12 basketfuls of food left over. An exclamation point response to a huge problem. Not only does he heal people from terrible diseases, even raising the dead, there's even a story with a Roman centurion whose soldier is sick, and, and, and he says, just speak the word. You don't even have to come and see him. And Jesus says, your faith is so great 
your servant is well. An exclamation point response to a significant problem, a terrible issue that someone is facing. And Jesus doesn't just survive a stormy sea. He walks on water through it. He doesn't just calm the waves. He walks on water over them first and then gets into the boat with the disciples. An exclamation point response to a huge problem. Now the resurrection is the greatest exclamation point on his already amazing ministry. He's raised from the dead. God's great, perfect answer. God's great, perfect answer to our sin, to our suffering, to our fear, is the exclamation point that is the resurrection of Jesus. Think of the physical toll on Jesus' body during his resurrection. I was uh, doing some reading about The Passion of the Christ this past week, the film that was made several years ago. And the actor who played Christ, Jim Caviezel, in that film needed two heart surgeries after the filming was completed. Uh, Five of the weeks of filming were done in the crucifixion scene. He needed two heart surgeries because of the toll that just playing the role of Jesus had taken on his body. Consider that Jesus actually endured all of that terrible torture. And there is his body. Perfect. Hardly even recognizable in its perfection. Even by somebody who was his friend, who loved following him, who who knew him so well. So he isn't just healed. He is absolutely and fully healed. And he isn't just healed temporarily. He will be alive forever. The exclamation point responding to the great question of death. One of Mary's questions Where is Jesus? He answers by revealing to her that he is alive. He's right there with her. It's so much better than the answer that she could have even hoped to get. He's alive. He found her. He's with her. What questions do you bring to God today? Are they big question marks like what Mary is asking of God Maybe some smaller question marks that that also could be answered in the resurrection of Christ. In the resurrection, God answers with exclamation points. Listening to the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism, pay attention to the questions that are answered by the resurrection of Jesus. Questions about our past, questions about our present, and questions about what we'll face in the future. Question and answer 45 of the Catechism, these words written 500 years ago that are still so helpful for the building of our faith. How does Christ's resurrection benefit us? A good question. First, thinking about the past, by his resurrection, he has overcome death so that he might make us share in the righteousness he obtained for us by his death. Second, by his power, we too are already raised to a new life, the present. And then thirdly, Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection, which is yet to come. So the first part of the answer concerns questions we have about death. 
And this is a big question mark, isn't it? Uh, even as a, a fairly young man, it's, it's a question I have and I think about at times. As a minister, I, I come alongside people who are dying and I'm always left wondering, how will I think? How will I feel? What will I be like when I'm laying in that bed someday myself? It's a big question mark. By the resurrection of Jesus, God has overcome death. That is the exclamation point to that huge question that we could have, that all of us will have at times. So you don't need to be afraid to die because Christ is risen. If you trust in him, if you believe in him, if you repent of your sin, you do not need to be afraid of hell, of death, of the judgment of God. Why not? Because he has defeated death when God raised him up. And this also proves that the Father has accepted the sacrifice of the life of his Son for our justification. And so, not only do we not need to fear death, but we do not need to fear the penalty of our sin, which is hell. So, the first part of the answer from the Heidelberg Catechism is a question about our past. Can we be forgiven for the things we've done? Yes. Because Christ has died and Christ is risen for our justification. The second part of the answer focused on the spiritual transformation and spiritual growth that we can have in this life. Maybe some come to church today wondering, will I ever really have life? Joy? Can I experience peace in the world? Can I experience spiritual growth and improvement and and grow in wisdom and knowledge? Grow in my understanding of the truth. Can I worship God like I know I ought to worship God with my whole life? Those are huge questions and at times it can feel like sin and temptation is a barrier to experiencing the joy and the fullness of of the Christian life in this world. But because of the resurrection of Jesus, according to the Catechism, by his power we too are already raised to a new life. His resurrection power is already at work in you, in your soul, in your mind, so that you are raised to new life. As Jesus has been raised to life in this world, so the Christian is raised to to new life in this world as well. So you can come to worship and you can open your Bible knowing that His resurrection power is at work in you and you can understand the deep things of God. You can worship him in spirit and in truth in the way that God desires. So you would come into worship at times or open your Bible at times and wonder, will change really happen in my life? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, the answer is an exclamation mark, yes, yes. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live. And that's not just a reference to living in heaven someday, not even just a reference of living in the new creation and resurrected bodies, but anyone who believes in me will live. And then also in John, he says, anyone who abides in me, like a vine, that, uh, or the, like branches that are attached to a living vine, that person will have life in them, will display much fruit, 
will show themselves to be my disciples. Because Christ is alive, we too who receive his spirit are alive as well in this world. I have been crucified with Christ, says Paul. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's alive and you can live through him by faith. The third question the resurrection answers concerns our future. What will happen? I hear a lot of people saying, I'm afraid for the future. I watch the news and I hear people say, I'm terrified of what is happening um, in Russia or in America in some way. Some world events that cause us to, to fear or worry or wonder. These are big questions that people have that, that they would very likely bring into worship, not just on Easter Sunday, but, but every time they enter into a sanctuary, every time they open a Bible, every time they turn on their TV. What is the future for the Christian? Christ's resurrection is a sure pledge to us of our blessed resurrection. What will happen in your future? Only God knows and he reveals to us what our future holds in his word. This is a question that could prompt just as much weeping and concern as what Mary experienced in the garden. What does the future hold for the Christian? What will I do now that something has changed in my life? How will things go for me even though I've had a discouragement or a personal failure? Even though I'm now a widow or a widower? I've lost my parent whom I love or my child has moved away who I spent so much wonderful time with. What does the future hold for the Christian? Ultimately, that question is answered with an exclamation mark because Christ has risen from the dead and it is rooted in our own blessed resurrection from the dead by Christ's power. When Jesus told Mary and Martha that he is the resurrection and the life, he also gave them a promise about what he will do for the person who believes in him. Jesus said, I will raise him up at the last day. A reference to not just a kind of general, vague, spiritual resurrection that so many people just believe, well, we we hopefully would just go to heaven someday after we die. The Christian answer is a greater answer than just going to heaven someday, which is amazing and glorious. The Christian answer to, to death is physical resurrection even in in this world by the power of Christ. That's an exclamation point answer to the huge question of your future. Jesus destroyed death and therefore we need not be afraid of death. That's why Paul wrote the words that Pastor Zach already shared with us. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? We can keep those words in our minds when we think about our own death and our own future. That death will have no victory and have no sting over us because Christ is risen and shares with us the benefits of his resurrection. So Paul isn't just referring back to Jesus' death that has taken away the sting and the victory of death, but also thinking about our own mortality as well. Each of us will die if the Lord should delay his coming. But no Christian need fear death because Jesus has answered that terrible question through his resurrection. And you will live again in Christ. So for Mary, the solution for her questions, the solution for her weeping, 
for her need was Jesus standing with her, standing literally right before her. Although he isn't standing right in front of us today, you have the answers that you need about these big questions in the Word of God. You come perhaps today with questions about purpose. What is your purpose? What should your motivation be for for work and for caring for family and for doing what is right? What should what direction should you go in your life in thinking about big decisions to make? Each of those is answered with exclamation points in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Think of how the resurrection of Christ gives purpose and motivation for all your work. Because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is at work in this world through his church, by his resurrection power and by his spirit, you have important things to do, brothers and sisters. Think of how the resurrection of Jesus answers the question of our guilt. That he applies to us the amazing benefits of the resurrection because we're forgiven of sin, we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and we're given new life into the family of God. So guilt is gone. We can have communion, fellowship with God and with one another. Some people come to church, I would guess, at times wondering how a worship service is going to go. What's going to happen here? Am I going to connect with uh, the sermon or the songs or the prayers or even in fellowship after the worship service. If your main thinking is concerning the resurrection of Christ, the answer will always be yes. If you're set, your mind is fixed on the resurrection of Jesus, when you open the Bible, you will see amazing things connecting the scriptures to Jesus' death and his resurrection. You would come into worship with the spirit of joy, knowing that Jesus is risen and this is the Lord's day. And even an effort to, to worship God, which we know at times is, is fallible and broken and, and so tainted by mistakes, could be beautiful, could be uplifting, because Jesus is alive and is blessing us in this world through his spirit. So coming into worship with the resurrection in mind, will prompt an experience of the presence of God. I should also add that sometimes the exclamation mark answer that God gives is a confrontation of sin. And so we could wonder, is this thing that I'm doing okay? And God would say, no! (laughs) Stop! And, And that exclamation mark can happen in worship as well when we would hear the word of God, the law of God. And, and not only we would have the exclamation mark answer of no, stop doing it, but we would have there's grace. There's life. There's a new start in Christ. So you can see God does not just answer questions quietly or meekly, but in Christ, particularly through his death and resurrection, the answer is an exclamation mark. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 22 give this exact teaching so, uh, formed so much of the thinking for my message today. For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to, the glory, or to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ 
and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Again, thinking about that first line, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. So the next time you are struggling with questions for God, big questions, ask how the resurrection of Jesus answers. Ask how the resurrection of Christ applies to what you're wondering about. The death and resurrection of Jesus shape all the questions we could have about our past, our present, and our future. Now, as I close, I want to ask one more question that we need to think about. What is God like? What is God like? Who is God? What is his character? Can I know him? And if so, what is he like? Well, of course, we know from the scriptures that God is creator. God is holy. God is loving. God is faithful. And today we remember that God wins. God is victorious. God is a conqueror over Satan, over sin, and over death. That's the message of the resurrection. Our God reigns over this world and even the world to come. What is Jesus like? He is so full of love for us that he died to take away our sins. And now he is alive. That's what Jesus is like. If you think, what is Jesus like? He is risen from the dead. God's perfect answer to sin and death is the resurrection of Jesus. So brothers and sisters, believe the good news today that Jesus is risen. Amen. Let's pray.